Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, Uber's APAC marketing boss, Andy Morley, was and maybe still is somewhat of an outlier among that set of fancied Silicon Valley startup marketers. Uber is clearly no startup these days, but Andy has been with the business eight years, convincing his peers who preferred growth hacking, performance marketing and partnership tactics that investing in brand work would, could trigger new customer growth and business momentum after struggling to break ahead of Australian competitors some years ago. There's an instructive tale of addressing rising customer acquisition costs and performance marketing, paid search and socials in the centre of that one, through to Uber's ambitions to deliver pianos its rideshare plan and intent to take the second car out of Australian homes with a better alternative, of course. And back in media and ad land, Uber, you would have noticed, has an ad business selling its apps screen real estate to brands. And Andy is one of the few CMOs in Australia, so far at least, to back attention metrics in ad campaigns. There's a lot to cover with the former marketer at global drinks giant Diageo, so let's get to it. Welcome, Andy. Before we get into some of the interesting territory Uber is taking on, Let's start with your observations on that great divide we've been hearing about for a while now, right, between Silicon Valley growth hacking and classic marketing. You've seen both. Where's the wind blowing on those two themes, Andy? Uh, Brand and marketing have been a bit of a dirty word to Silicon Valley for a while, hasn't it? And welcome. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, we definitely have seen it uh, at Uber. That's been a core part of our story. And I think the obsession with performance marketing and growth hacking uh, really came from actually all of the startups that were happening in Silicon Valley that were founded by engineers. And if you think about an engineer's mindset, they want to build a product as efficiently as possible, start with a small audience, uh, and slowly kind of iterate and iterate and iterate. And that's actually how they build a customer base and, and perfect the product. But if you think about brand marketing, it's the exact opposite of that. You're trying to talk to a really, really big audience over a longer period of time. Uh, You want to be getting it right from the start and building a long-term brand uh, to get a broader audience in. Uh, And so I think this conflict uh, meant that actually the founders of Silicon Valley were much more attracted to performance marketing, which was much more similar. I'm going to target a small amount of people and I'm just going to optimize and optimize and try and get this as cost-efficient as possible. But I think over time, they've realized that actually it's not quite what was written on the tin. It kind of worked at the start, though, didn't it? It does work to a point. There is an absolute role for performance marketing in any business or at least any digital-focused business, which is nearly every business these days. Mm. Um, The question is just, what's the balance? And the balance varies completely by category, by the life stage Mm. of the category, how competitive it is, what the consumer behavior is for that category, and be very different. So I'll give you uh, some examples. Uh, Mm. If you're selling insurance, you know that there's going to be a huge amount of people every year who see the, all insurance companies is somewhat similar. They're going to go online and they're going to start searching for the best offer that they can possibly get uh, for their insurance. And so in that world, performance marketing is going to be really important because you need to be present in that search. Although brand is also going to be very important because we know that the brands that show up in that space are going to be the ones that people start to click on and differentiate. If you're another brand like a Airbnb, for instance, we've talked about they will sidestep the category because they've got a very differentiated product completely to what else is there on the market. So we know the consumer behavior that they've built over time is people will go into the app and search directly for that. 
And so you really need to understand actually what's the difference between your two categories and what therefore the role that performance marketing plays. And what happened, so this is the interesting bit for you, Andy, you came into this environment from Diageo, which is a classic and has a bunch of global iconic brands, Johnny Walker and the rest. You came from that environment into Uber. How did you adjust or did you? <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. It was a complete contrast to what I've been used to, where I come from this very organized, sophisticated brand building organization and the Diageo way of building brands uh, is right up there with some of the best practices in doing that. Mm. And in alcohol, we know how we break. Brand is just so important. It's a lot of the time the only differentiator between a lot of products. Yeah, sure, people will tell you that one whiskey has been aged a slightly different way versus another, but at the end of the day, the brand is why people are purchasing it. Uh, it came into a place like Uber and the product itself was doing a lot of the selling. And that's right. It, it was such a great differentiated product. The product market fit was incredible. And the word of mouth was spreading that. And people were really hesitant to want to invest in brand building because they could see the immediate growth that was coming just from this. And they were coming with that mindset of a product where you just optimize and optimize and the people will come. But over time, we... So they wanted to keep on growing as fast as possible. And so they started pouring huge amounts of money into performance marketing because it felt like the most controllable way to build up that demand really, really quickly. And we had our first head of marketing globally came in from Facebook. So he brought that mindset in and we had a huge amounts of supply uh, in terms of drivers on the road. So we wanted to accelerate the amount of demand uh, and the mandate to performance marketing was just spend, spend, spend. At one point, the performance marketing's main KPI was actually how much investment they could deploy. Rather than, yeah, and, and it was getting crazy. And so what was happening is it would constantly be spitting out a good cost per first trip, a good ROI. And people would go, oh, that's great. I know that I can get a new customer for 25 bucks. I know that over their lifetime, that's going to be worth more than that. And so I'll keep on putting more in, more in. And as they wanted to put more dollars in, they started to have to go, all right, where's more channels that I can put it in? And then the more channels that you put it in, some of the cheaper channels you go, and it looks like actually you're getting a cheaper cost per first trip. But in reality, the incrementality was was really challenged because the measurement of performance marketing is also really challenging and it feels like you're getting a great measurement out of it. But the reality is there's lots of pitfalls in actually the metrics that you're getting. So what was wrong with the metrics then that um, we didn't know at the time? If you think about performance marketing, the, what it's trying to do is it's trying to convert people who are already in the market right now. And it's trying to do that for the lowest cost possible. So if it's trying to do it for the lowest cost possible, it's going to target the people who they think it's most likely to be able to convert. And so when you so performance marketing ads will naturally gravitate to the people who have a really high chance that they're actually going to convert into a product anyway. So therefore, it's not that incremental because you're you're really just accelerating the conversion of someone who's coming anyway. But that doesn't easily show up in the metrics. You have to do some pretty sophisticated incrementality testing to be able to truly understand where, how much you're paying for the additional incremental person versus actually just paying money for the people who are going to come anyway. Uh, and that's and the so, stuff that wasn't showing up in the numbers. So people right, and somehow you discovered that though, Andy. So so at Uber, so what started to change the thinking on this? Because it was, you know, I, mean, I think we mentioned in, in our talk earlier that you'd made some good traction in Australia, but then it kind of leveled out or peaked, and you weren't weren't sort of taking great share leaps against your competitive set. I think that's what happened. As I said, the general managers 
loved performance marketing because they felt like they had much more control in it. It felt much more measurable. Whereas brand marketing, they knew was a big investment. It was harder to measure. Um, they had to have buy-in for the long-term need of it. But given the momentum of the business and the product already, they didn't necessarily feel like it was a necessary investment. And so they kept on investing and pushing this, pushing these investments into performance marketing. But we had very smart general managers and very smart people in the business. And they'd do it. they push more money in uh, and the, the momentum will continue. And maybe they'd get a couple of false signals in that the organic momentum of the business was just accelerating at the same time they put money in. And that, that would right. reinforce that behavior. But they got to a point where they wanted to make bold moves. They wanted to understand actually the relationship between the investment and the growth. And so some of them... Are, the GMs would say, let's double the amount that we're putting into demand. Let's see actually what happens next. And they do that and not much would change. Or they and then they turn it off for a, a month or two and then not that much would change. There might yeah, be right. a variance of 10, 15%, but when you're growing is at 200% as a business, it's not nearly actually what performance marketing was promising to be. And that's when the questions started to rise. Mm. Well, like, this is about uh, around, what, 2015, 16? Was that re- I wanna, there? Or I want to say tw- end of 2016, start of 2017. Okay, right. And what happened, Andy? So the questions well, were I asked. Think it, I think it went from being an obsession with performance marketing to some real skepticism of performance marketing. Right, right. And, and the dial swung the other way. Now, that, that didn't come hand in hand with, hey, we want to move all the money into brand. It was mm. just, now I'm really questioning marketing overall. We're really questioning actually how we go about this and the role of it. And money started to get pulled back from performance marketing, which was the right thing. We were way over-invested on it. Uh, but then we had to build the case for what marketing 101 is and what true brand marketing is. And that's where some of your old uh, world skills and classic marketing sort of uh, training, I guess, development came in handy? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't me uh, alone. It was uh, the team that we were working with. I think particularly in Australia, we were lucky. We had great business partners. We had a very, very smart guy called David Rorsheim, who was the founder of Uber in Australia. And he was he could see the big picture. He understood the importance it was to build a brand to help access the mass majority of a market uh, and give you differentiation over time. So he he was supportive. We had Steve Brennan, who's one of the most brilliant CMOs here at the time, uh, Georgie Jeffries, who heads up our US uh, and Canada team lead, leading the Uber Eats business for brand. And I was in the background doing a lot of the strategy and planning. And together, we built the case for actually doing the first big brand marketing campaign, probably for Uber globally in Australia, which was uh, we went out to pitch uh, and that's where we landed our relationship with a special group and we took our first big campaign to market and it was Tonight I'll Be Eating. Uh, And that campaign saw immediate impact uh, and then became the case study uh, and the proof point that we could then take to the rest of the world around actually the value that brand marketing can be, uh, can build, and then being able to scale that out from here. Now, a big part of that, I guess, if we, if we just recap, for, I'm sure everybody knows it, but there is a chance that one or two, you know, it was it was tonight I'm eating. You did a, quite a, a big, obviously, advertising campaign. You're in the Australian Open. That was quite significant. You're integrated into the broadcast as well, right? That made that got some movement for you, didn't it? Yeah, it was huge. I think we, when we entered the Uber Eats category at the end of 2016, the online food delivery, 
Well, we were the number four player. Uh, Already in market was Menulog, Deliveroo, and Fedora at the time. Uh, And we expected that we would just be able to use the rides database uh, that we'd been able to build up already uh, and our product skills to be able to quickly eclipse them. And that just didn't happen. Uh, We were doing lots of tactical marketing activity, not big investments, uh, and we were just stagnating to a degree. It wasn't as easy as we thought it was going to be. So that halo from Uber wasn't quite transferring? We were getting to a point, but we weren't breaking through and passing the competition. And then we saw what was happening in market. All the competitors were doing pretty much the same marketing. It was very boring category marketing picture of a couple of bowls of food and a cheeky headline on a bus. We had some hilarious presentation decks where we saw the exact same format uh, just with slightly different logos and different brand colors from all the Mm. three other competitors on the same surface. Uh, There was no differentiation how they were going to market. So we knew that if we wanted to surpass them and stand apart, that we had to do something big and bold. uh, And that's where we lent into the Tornado Beating concept. Uh, and the first campaign, we had nine different celebrities, uh, a mix of global celebrities down to some very localised ones. Uh, we did different iterations in every city so that we could talk about local restaurants as we did that. But it was definitely a much bigger campaign than the industry had seen or that we'd done globally for Uber Eats. And it had immediate traction. I've never seen brand metrics jump at such a fast rate for over a six-week period than what we saw in that space. Uh, And within about a year, we'd gone from being the number four player to number one. And since then, we've been able to run away with it. It's a case study for everyone in the next 10 years, I reckon. It does get us to, Andy, that broader sense of the growth hacking playbook and a return in some ways to acknowledgement of maybe some of those old-fashioned thinking and marketing might work. Do you see that happening now? Is it starting to sort of spread among tech and startup community? Because we, we hear a lot more of them talking about brand. Yeah, I think it is. I think it, everyone is now very aware of the role of brand and performance and growth hacking and that they need to be thinking with a mix of both of them and they need to understand actually how that's different for their category. I think what we've learned over time is that any business that just invests in performance marketing ends up going into a negative spiral because they're not building a broader audience. They're only just trying to win uh, a high propensity conversion audience. uh, And that's going to win them some short-term sales. But over time, that's going to be much more narrow. Uh, And if they're not building their brand at the same time, it's going to be more expensive and harder for them to win at that point of conversion. So there is a role for it, but they they know that they need to balance that with brand. Uh, And over time, I think we've seen that as the performance space gets more competitive, the engines get more sophisticated, it actually gets harder to win in that space and even the importance of brand continues to even grow. So we're, we're very aware that our category behaviour is not people at the point of purchase where we need to convert them. Um, mm. The, the behaviour that we need to do is start to really make people aware and understand us and like us well further up the funnel And then when they get to that moment of truth where they might have a a use case where they want to use us, that's where actually the community around them can actually help support them, get the app on their phone, get them taking their first trips. And the work that we've done at the top of the funnel is going to be very important. There's still a role for performance marketing. Uh, There's still a role for, especially on the eat side, I would say, where we know that actually people are eating at least three meals a day 
So 21 opportunities. So you, you can get into that point of conversion and you can be giving them offers that might just kind of help push them over the line and get them into the product. But we know it's not the heartbeat of actually what we need to be doing to build a broader audience and help us access new categories. And the classic rule of 60-40 as a general rule on brand to, to performance marketing and, and sort of tactical stuff, where is Uber at on that one? Uh, I can't give you the exact percentages, I don't think, but I can tell you it's definitely higher on brand than that 60-40. Okay. It depends on category and different markets, uh, but in Australia, we're definitely on the higher side of that. So Andy, let's have a chat now about, so we've, we've had a sort of a retrospective and a market-wide look at what's been happening. Let's get to the category of Uber and Uber Eats, uh, what's going on in sort of the macro trends, changes and challenges uh, that you're seeing. Are you affected on the Uber Eats side with the cost of living or are you affected on the drive side, the, the ride side with the cost of living? What's going on in the category now, Andy, and, and are you still number one? We do still have market leadership. Yeah, we, we're seeing only minor movements and variation and changes in behavior. Mm. Um, right. And it's it's less about actually the top line. It's more about actually just changes in behavior around how people are using us, which is probably more akin to actually actually how they're living in the world at the moment. So people are still using Rideshare and people are still using online food delivery. Uh, for Rideshare, we're seeing some slight changes in behavior. We're seeing a, a little bit more heavily for people getting to the office and not. Uh, so the the commute stage uh, and a little bit less in terms of people going out on the weekend. And maybe that's a, right. more of a macro trend that's happening where people are going out a little bit less than they were uh, in previous years. And uh, we are seeing people return to work and the office life much more this year than last year. Um, but at a top line level, Rideshare is still playing uh, as big a role, slightly bigger role than it has historically. And it's just movements in actually how people are living that is adjusting it. Okay, so the rideshare category as we, at a category level is still rising in terms of how you measure that. Was that volume, number of trips, spend, how, how are you measuring both, that? Both, both of those things. Right, yeah. and they're both still up. They're on, both still say, up. on last year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. On the eat side, Andy, what's happening on the, in there? Yeah, that's where we probably had more concerns because the mobility side is somewhat a little bit more functional. People have a more functional need for it, and we know that we play an important role in getting people to places that can't be replaced in many ways. For the delivery side, we know that that's a, a little bit more of a flexible transaction, and with people cutting back costs, would they be seeing this as a luxury? Would they be seeing this as something that they want to be cutting back on their costs? Uh, and what we've seen, actually, is positive growth continuing for the delivery side. We don't fully know how to explain this, but what we have seen in a lot of the insights is people might not be going out for that expensive meal on the weekend anymore, but when it gets to Friday night, they don't want to cook the same way that they've done the entire week either. They still need some kind of uh, moments to be able to treat themselves uh, and to relax and do something that's a bit different, uh, and that's a role that they can more affordably do with Uber Eats compared to going out to a fancy restaurant. So, I mean, it's seen as the lipstick effect where... People will cut back on certain things that they can compromise on, but uh, but they still want to give themselves some form of enjoyment. Uh, and it looks like we're playing that role for them really well at the moment. On and Friday so, nights? On Friday nights, Thursday nights, Saturday nights. Okay, so so just to be clear, on, on at a category level or for you, on the eat side, you are seeing growth too. It's just changing in, in how it's, it's form, it's shape, so how it's sort of… On the eat side, we are still seeing growth. We're seeing trip growth. We're seeing… We're seeing sales growth overall, 
And the actual behaviours around it aren't changing that much, to be honest. Right. I think what we are just seeing is that people are continuing to use us uh, and they give, they're sacrificing other parts of things of their life that they see as more of a luxury, uh, but they're maintaining us because we're seen as an affordable luxury for them. Right. So the ordering patterns, the days and the day parts are still holding pre-cost of living debate and all those journos making stuff up. Totally. Totally. Right. Okay. It's really, that's very interesting. Ne- I think, never, there's your chance to have a go, mate. Never trust those journos, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's I, right. Exactly. I think the other thing that we're, we're obviously seeing and we're investing in heavily is this greater need for convenience. I mean, people have come out of the world of COVID and now into this uh, back to the office world uh, and people have never been busier. Uh, and we have a great opportunity to actually make people's lives easier with things like grocery delivery uh, and alcohol delivery and anything that they might need. And so this is a, a big investment area for us uh, and our biggest focus for actually how we grow the category in the future. Uh, and we're seeing that play out. We're seeing the on-demand grocery category uh, accelerating really, really quickly. That's the sort of the, the fastest emerging of what you're seeing. Okay, interesting. Where does that ultimately end up, Andy? What is the well, – probably is a good segue into some of the, the grand ambitions that Uber has for what next for the business and for, you know, involvement in society, if you want to get that grandiose. But it's, some of your ambitions are, are big. Yeah. I mean, so on the delivery side, we want to get to a point where people can get pretty much anything that they want on demand. So Dara's talked about the day that we're done is the day that someone can get a piano delivered to them within an hour. Now, will we ever will we ever deliver a grand piano to someone within an hour? Probably not. There's going to be a, a tipping point where we don't quite get there. But that's that's almost the north the analogy holes. that we want. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so right now we're heavily focused around grocery and different retail products that people have an immediate need for, but that stretches quite heavily. And over time, we're seeing behavior for a lot of these categories change dramatically, where previously they were frustrated, but they were accepting of having a five-hour delivery window the next day that they'd have to hang around their house for. They're no longer accepting that because now that there's better alternatives and soon they're transitioning into a world where they realise that they should be able to get anything that they want at fast pace uh, and we can help deliver on that. And it's funny, I've been in my new role as APAC, I've been working across other markets and you look in a market like Taiwan uh, where actually the the use of delivery is almost triple the market here. Uh, it's oh, got right. the highest frequency in the world uh, and it's just very, very common for people to get order absolutely anything, particularly food, on demand multiple times a day uh, because they have this convenience lifestyle and they've set up the ecosystem and normalized this. So we know it's possible uh, and we're building that future where it makes like, people's lives a lot easier. How, so is that just an organic uh, awareness that happens with those other services because you've got the, an existing customer's got the app, Andy, or are you having to build awareness uh, around those other things? Do you market it, for instance, or is it just an organic player? Yeah, I mean, we, we have to market it. If you think about actually how many customers we have, we obviously have quite a few that come in quite regularly, but then we also have this very, very long tail of customers who use the category only occasionally. And that's the same. Are we 80-20 on that one out of interest? Is it 80-20 on that sort of? No, it's not quite uh, 80-20. It's a little bit more of a spread on that, but it's not that different. Mm. And that's pretty similar in absolutely any category uh, across the world. And so we know that actually our own channels have a lot of power. 
to help people understand mm. our new products. Uh, but we're talking, we're preaching to the converted to a degree, these high frequency customers. We always tend to focus, particularly from a marketing point of view, around the mass audience. Like the long tail, the huge amount of people who are low frequency users is a much more important audience for us uh, than the high frequency ones. And so uh, we are going at marketing. We have a big brand repositioning job to do. We have really solidified our brand as standing for food delivery, uh, as in restaurant food delivery. Through tonight, I'll be eating six, seven years of investment into these campaigns, actually what the brand was founded on, our brand name Uber Eats. And we have a big mm. job to do to become salient for people for when they need other things other than restaurant food. Uh, and that was the premise for us launching Get Almost Almost Anything campaign at the yeah. start of this year. Uh, we we even tried before that to to do this underneath the Tonight I'll Be Eating campaign. We tried to actually talk about groceries and other things that you can now get on Uber Eats, but it just didn't really change perception of the brand. And right. so we knew that we had to do something drastic and different. So we launched Get Almost Almost Anything. We're about to launch our third chapter of that in the coming months. And so far, all the signal seems to be great that it's helping people reframe what they think of Uber Eats and start to make us salient for when they need things other than restaurant food, particularly groceries, uh, but almost almost anything. Nice. Uh, good incorporation good. there, Andy. You're a smart you. man. <laughs> and so let's go to what you're doing in mobility and ride because there's some, there's some equally interesting stuff that you're, you're up to there. Yeah, I mean, why I love, love this business is just how future thinking everyone is here and they will not get too caught in the weeds of how we're doing this quarter and are we going to hit a number. It's about what's the vision over the next three, four, five years and how are we building for that. And the business in Australia on the mobility side about a year ago uh, rallied together and said, what's the role that we're going to be playing in the community and how can we start to be building for that? And there's a real passion and a vision for us to really have an impact in building a much more sustainable future in cities across Australia, as it is across the world. Uh, we have our purpose as to reimagine the way the world moves for the better. And we think that uh, creating a much more sustainable world is going to be the core thing to lean into there. And so through all the research, we worked out actually the biggest area where we can make a difference is actually helping reduce car ownership. Because actually creating a car before it's even been filled with petrol and goes on the road uses up a whole year's worth of someone's credit allocation in terms of carbons, just the oh. actual manufacturing of a car. And Australia mm. is one of the most car-hungry countries in the world. Like there's over 15 million cars. We're right up there with the US uh, in terms of the highest number of car ownership per capita. Uh, and we know that the huge amount of those cars, I think it's 96% of them are just constantly sitting in a garage uh, and heavily underutilized. Uh, and it's not good for the consumers either. It costs them a bomb. It, car insurances, petrol, or uh, rego costs, all of that is skyrocketing. And so we know that we can provide a, a better future for them. Uh, and what you need to be able to do to replace car ownership is make an alternative for people that's much more attractive. And for us, that means the, all of the different transports that we can get them together in the ecosystem done in a really easy, effortless way. And so for us, we looked at our portfolio and we said, well, rideshare plays a role within that, but it's not for every occasion. Uh, it's not going to be the most affordable way to move around. It's not going to be the thing that you can do on longer trips. 
Public transport, we know, can play a fantastic role. It doesn't serve everywhere really, really well, but we know that that's a, an important part of actually how people should be getting around in the future. Uh, and interestingly enough, we've just launched in the UK that now you can access trains on Uber, which yeah. which I think is fantastic. Uh, there's some brilliant campaign work that's come out of the UK team to talk about that. And then we said, but the main thing that's stopping people from using all of these better forms of transport at the moment is that they've got a car sitting idle in the garage. And we need to change that behavior over time, uh, particularly in Australia. Uh, and 53% of Australian households have a second car. Uh, and right. that second car is way more useless than the first one. And so, so we, how are you going to do this, Andy? Well, we that was the premise for us buying Car Next Door. Right. And now we recently rebranded that to Uber Car Share. And now we're launching uh, Uber Car Share across other markets in the world. It's recently launched in Boston and Toronto, led out of the team in Australia here. And because right. we know that there's going to be some times where you actually do need a private car. You might want to go for a drive down the coast. You might need to go pick up something that you need to put in the boot and do a few chores around. Uh, and if we can make that as easy for people to walk down the end of their street, press a button on an app, being able to drive a car for an hour or take it away for the weekend, um, just as easy as they're able to get a ride share today, uh, then all of a sudden, the actual use cases that they really need to have a private car start to diminish. And if they start using all of the different multi-modes for all of their travel, then they can save thousands of dollars a year uh, and we help the planet. And so the old car next door operation, which you've you've rebranded, Andy, how big will the network ultimately be, do you think? Oh, I don't know. In Australia, like two in a suburb, one in every street, what's possible, what's probable, what have you mapped? Uh, We have over 10,000 cars today. Right. So, and we see ourselves at the starting point. Uh, We can see a world where, if you look at a place like Bondi, which is where it started, and uh, 10 years ago with KXO, there are multiple car shares on every street. Right. And that ecosystem is already showing actually the potential of the system. And so, yeah, we see a world where people shouldn't have to walk more than 100 meters and they're going to be able to hire a car to be able to get around now. When you get further out into the outer suburbs, maybe that spreads out a bit further. Um, how does it work with airports and everything? Uh, but we are seeing huge traction, huge amounts of people seeing it as a no-brainer to take the car that's just sitting in the garage doing absolutely nothing, put it on car share, uh, and then they have a chance to make a, a few hundred bucks for doing absolutely nothing. Right. And, and so just talk through the interest and demand for that now. So year on year, comparisons, not additional cars, but are people, are you seeing usage increase at an individual customer level? S- significantly. Yeah. Right. I, um, I don't think I can share exact numbers, but we're seeing huge, huge growth in terms of people adopting this behavior and trying it for the first time uh, and turning it into a regular piece for them. And we're saying that a lot of people will come through the travel use case. So they might actually be, I want to go down the coast. I've got a tiny car currently and we want to go down the coast and we need to be able to fit more things in and they'll go as a day trip or a weekend trip. And then all of a sudden, maybe they get rid of their second car and we start to see them doing grocery trips or two-hour trips to go do a few errands uh, and drop the car back. And they're starting to replace that second car ownership with this car share behavior. Uh, I did it myself. I did it uh, 18 months ago when we we first started on this journey. We had a second car at home uh, and it sat idle most of the time. I would drive it to work just because I had uh, the car there. But I said, no, 
let's uh, let's embrace this vision, got rid of the car and started running to work yeah, twice right. a week. Other days I'll catch a, bit, a mix of public transport uh, or maybe an Uber uh, and I feel much better from my lifestyle. I'm actually utilising myself much better. Like running to work only takes five minutes more than actually getting stuck in traffic down Oxford Street. Yeah, right. right. Uh, and overall we're saving $10,000 a year from not having that second car. So it's it's a bold ambition, but I, we really believe that there's a use case here and the more and more people are experiencing it, the better. So we're, we've set a goal of taking a million cars off the road over the next five years. Uh, we are trying to build up this use case as much as possible, but then actually how do we use the full ecosystem of transport to make it easy for people to have an alternative? Uh, and hopefully that A million cars in Australia, most. Andy? million cars yeah. in Australia. Is there a certain type of individual consumer segment that is more aligned to doing this than others are you gonna are you gonna have to try and is it a harder job for some some customer segments to actually go yeah i'm gonna drop the second car yeah of course with it with every category it, it's gonna be the early adopters of this category are gonna be the inner city young folk who don't have a car or have like a, a really small car and need it for other use cases but we are starting to see lots of families work out that they don't need that second car now. Having a second car is very expensive. Uh, yeah. And as people look at their costs, it's probably one of the biggest things that they can do to actually save money, which they they obviously want to do in an important time like this. And so more and more we're seeing that family audiences are starting to adopt uh, this mentality of, yes, we need one car to be able to take our kids around to all of the things that we need, uh, but actually we can find other ways to get around for the second moment. Do you have interesting conversations with auto companies, Andy, by any chance? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we, I think we, we definitely do. We have some great friends uh, within the auto industry as well. Uh, we just did a great partnership with Kia uh, at the Australian Open, and we're big supporters of EV vehicles. Uh, we continue to invest heavily in trying to get more and more EVs on rideshare, uh, and we see that that is going to be a big part of the ecosystem. So for us... There's going to be a mix um, of vehicles uh, in the ecosystem. And actually, we think that there's going to be a better way is if we can just make all of that ecosystem much more efficient and affordable for everyone. So, Andy, just when you said about the increase in the use of car share is huge year on year, so it is growing. Are we talking a range here? I'm not going to try. You can just get so broad, you must have to be able to say yes. So, a huge does huge mean between 15 and 30 percent or more? Why don't I make a punt and go, huge sounds to me like it's kind of upwards of 25%. Can we just pretend that you'll agree with me? Yeah, I could agree with you that it's it's definitely more than that. Thank you. All right, well, we'll just run with that. Let's go to the final bit of this conversation, which is also interesting, is that you've both, Uber's entered the ads business. Um, you've got Uber ads and how's that going? And also your view uh, as a marketer on, on the effectiveness of advertising and how you believe that attention metrics are really, really important to that. The ads business is very new, uh, but so far very going very, very well. Uh, and I think what people are valuing about our ads business is the attention that we have from the formats compared to other formats that they can buy. Uh, because we do have these unique moments where someone has ordered a ride share and they're waiting three four minutes for that right share to turn up uh, and they're wanting to look at their phone. They're kind of constantly going back into the app to check actually where that car is. Uh, mm. And that's a much more a high attention moment for us to be able to put a message that's highly relevant in front of someone. 
Uh, and what we do know about it is we know probably a lot about that person, where they've been uh, historically. So we know what kind of person that they probably are. Uh, we know where they're going. Uh, so mm. we can serve them an ad for the place that they're exactly going to or near where they're going to. Uh, and that's quite attractive to a lot of people. So we're seeing a lot of brands uh, starting to really kind of bring this into their ecosystem. It's a really nice add-on to their existing campaign. And we'll see more and more products start to emerge to give them more opportunity to engage customers in this highly engageable moment. How do you sell the audience there? What is the audience size or how is it bundled to market, Andy? Like are you going and saying we've got X uniques a month and what is that number? We know that we've got 8 million customers across the platform every quarter. That's the total ecosystem. I think when Is that it, Uber Eats ride and everything you mean? Yeah, but the majority yep. of our customers do both. What's interesting for most of the players though is, yeah, that's a big number. Nearly every platform will have a big number that they can reach. What uniquely can you tell me about this audience and how can I reach them in the moment with guarantee because I know exactly where they're going? And that is a unique role that we can play for them versus actually just buying a mass buy within some of the other digital channels. Mm. And so, the, yes, we have the mass audience, but actually the targeting opportunities uh, are what's really, really attractive. And the in-the-moment marketing is what's really, really attractive for a lot of players. Is the executions more tactical or brand in that? And I'm asking that because I clearly have your app and I clearly see the ads, but I'm just asking you, Andy. Yeah, I mean, more brand, but there's a role for both. But at the end of the day, the what we talked about performance marketing earlier would all be about a cost efficiency. Um, yeah. And so trying to target people who are in the market right there and then, this is a moment where people can be engaged around a brand and think about the relevance of that brand. Uh, and it takes a lot of physical a lot of physical brands have a role to play in this versus just digital conversion brands because that's not necessarily going to be a great shopping moment, uh, but it will be a great moment for people to be thinking about a brand. Uh, alcohol brands love advertising here when they know that someone's going to a bar uh, yeah, and right. you can get in front of someone. People like Paramount have been a really good partner. It's a really good opportunity to, to talk about some of the content that's coming up because they know that people are on their way home. So we can offer good some examples. Like yeah, right. Um, so, and let's get to attention then, because you mentioned attention huh. earlier. Now, it's obviously this notion if we try and set it up. Well, actually, I should get it, you to set it up because you're the expert. I just sort of ask I'm questions. I'm not. But- I feel like you've made me the expert. I think one article, <laughs> I mentioned something that I'm passionate about the industry moving in this direction, and all of a sudden it sounded like I had it all solved, yeah. which well, I definitely so, don't. That's another bloody journal. No, I don't know if we set you up as having it all solved. I think we set you up as saying this is where it's got to go. It's got to go. So at a macro for those who aren't across it, basically we know that the way media behavior and the media channels are transitioning is rapidly changing. We know 10 years ago everyone was watching uh, free-to-air TV all the time. Uh, some digital channels were emerging And during that period, we've seen drastic change in actually how people engage with different media, how media is differently served. And over the next five years, we're going to see a further acceleration of that change, particularly streaming platforms, uh, the different digital ecosystems, uh, all emerging. So the hardest thing for marketers then is actually we've got a finite budget to spend on media. The world is changing. Consumer behavior is changing. How much of our media dollars do we need to change to best fit with actually how to best engage with customers in this new world? And so 
the metric that historically has been used for planning out your media campaigns has been reach and frequency. Uh, and it was easy to do when the majority of your media was TV and a couple of other things because you... And I just want to say there for, the, for our audience that may not be across the, the depths of media metrics, reach and frequency is audience reach, the percentage of an audience category or segment you're trying to target, how, how what percentage can you reach them, and frequency is how often. Did I get that right? That's exactly right. Traditionally, when it was mainly about TV, you could easily plan for that and you knew how, how many people you'd want to reach and how often you needed to reach them for them to start to think of you differently or change behavior. As the digital channels emerged, they offered an opportunity to increase that frequency at a much, much cheaper rate. And that is because the experience that you're getting is not the same as the experience you're getting on TV, but the reach and frequency methodology doesn't account for that. It says actually the the same one point of frequency that you get for someone watching a 30-second TV ad or a 60-second cinema ad is the same point of frequency that you get if someone scrolls past a social media ad in half a second. And we know that's not oh, true. An ad is an ad is an ad is the, is an that, ad is is that's ad the is assumption. Ad. Yeah. yeah. And so the challenge then is what, what metrics do I have then to adjust my media plan? I know more people are going into digital channels. I know more people are going into social media. But how much of my budget should I be putting there? And if you just believed reach and frequency metrics, you'd push everything in there. Every platform says that they reach 80% of people on an average of truckloads a month. The reality is we know that that half a second on that ad is not worth the same as the 30 second on the ad. And we need some kind of commonality metric to account for that. So then we can adjust our media accordingly. And attention is the first metric that's uh, that's given us hope that actually we can get to something that helps us with that journey. Uh, Karen Nelson-Field has done some amazing work uh, and continues to do lots and lots of testing to understand uh, what is the true attention level that that 30-second, uh, sorry, half a second digital ad offers versus the 30-second TV ad? And actually, what is the impact of the variances of those two things and how much do we actually need? At what point mm. are we kind of over-serving uh, within different channels? Uh, so I, we believe in it. We have organically just had an attention-focused strategy for a long time in terms of our media. We've always bought big channels and we've been resistant of moving too quickly into the low-engagement digital channels. But we have transitioned over time as the market's moved, but we've just held a, a natural hold onto the big channels and I still do believe in them. And over time, though, we do want these metrics to get to a more sophisticated point where we have to use less gut feel about it and more science and actually how we model it. And it feels like we're on the verge of this now, but we're not. Are you, piloting, are you piloting anything with any of the methodologies, Andy, yet, or is that yeah, sort of I mean, still coming? We, we are working with uh, Karen and the team at the moment, uh, and we're starting to roll, roll in some tests throughout the year as well. Right. So we might have some learnings at the end of the year we can ask you about. Yeah, definitely. To wrap up this year, there seems to be a little bit of you know sentiment sort of turning a little bit interest rates and all those things that tend to drive all our conversations. What's your sense as the APAC CMO on Australia for this year, Andy, in terms of your confidence? Yeah, I mean every every sign is looking positive at the moment. I think we mm. understand the role that we play is an everyday role in people's lives, uh, and that hasn't been changing dramatically at the moment. Consumer sentiment at the macro says, who, who's, I'm not an economist. Um, I don't have a full guess on this. I know for some categories, they're going to be affected more than others. It feels fairly balanced at the moment. I think Australia remains a lucky country where we do have some levels of concern, but not nearly the same as some of the other markets uh, across the rest of the world. So yeah, right, right now I feel 
really confident around the role that we're playing across both of the categories that we're in, the growth opportunities that we're focused on are really emerging. And the macro, I think we'll see what happens, but I don't expect it to completely shift our direction. Hey, thanks for joining. Um, great conversation and uh, really look forward to how these million cars go. That's fascinating. Um, thanks for joining. Thanks, Paul. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.